0: I think that a lot of people think about these figures or artists, great artists, as somehow kind of almost non-human, sort of, you know, like they're they're touched with some sort of divine gift. And that's, I think, what Rilke thought early in his life when he was writing letters to a young poet. He was like, how do I get that thing, that you know that magic touch, whatever it is, um, and I think that he learned. And I think what you kind of take away from the book is that um, really all it is is a lot, a lot of dedication and work. Uh, they were both really relentless artists, and they it drove them entirely. Their whole lives were devoted to this. And I think that you know it isn't. You don't need to find out how how to live, as Roca started out asking. Like there is no certain food to eat or place to live or that's going to give you what it takes. And I think people sort of look for that when they when they want to become creative. They want to read about what what, what how did this person do it exactly? Where exactly did they go to school? I'll just follow that road roadmap. But I think um, Rodan and Roca good good examples of how truly human they were and how they were so successful because of their talent, of course, but also because they they just never stopped working.
1: Hello everyone, welcome to Art Podcast, where I, Vasha Arminikos, ask questions to best-selling non-fiction authors about their books and ideas. Today my guest is Rachel Corbett, author of a brilliant book called You Must Change Your Life, which tells the story of the brief and intense relationship between renowned sculptor Auguste Rodin and the poet Rainer Maria Rilke. In 1902 Rainer Maria Rilke was a delicate visitor from Prague in Paris. He was broke and suffering from writer's block. He was commissioned to write a book on Rodin, who was already a renowned artist at the time. This is when everything changes. You must change your life reveals one of the great stories of modern art and literature. Rodin and Rilke's years together as master and disciple, their heartbreaking rift and moving reconciliation. In her vibrant debut, Rachel Corbett reveals how Rodin's influence led Rilke to write his most celebrated poems and inspired his beloved letters to a young poet. She captures the dawn of modernism with appearances by Paul Cezanne, Henri Matisse, Luandres Salome, George Bernard Shaw, and Jean Cocteau. In this interview, I also wanted to ask Rachel about how Rodin and Rilke influenced her life, how she discovered them, and what are her favorite poems by Rilke and her favorite sculptures by Rodin. I know that this might sound cliche, but when I was reading this book, I was getting a strong feeling as if I'm reading the script for the second part of Wes Anderson's The Grand Budapest Hotel. I hope you'll enjoy listening to my interview with Rachel Corbett. Dear Rachel, thank you so much for coming to my podcast. And as I said just a couple of minutes ago, if I sound to our listeners and to you as a fanboy, please excuse me. I really enjoyed reading your book, You Must Change Your Life, about uh, Roden and Rilke. And I really wanted to explore your connection to both of those really incredible artists uh, that i personally admire and i was so excited to discover your book i wanted to ask you how how does one decide to write a book like that a a book on relationship between two artists like that what how did you approach it how did you discover this subject
0: well um i came you know most readers of the book align with one or the other rilke rodin brings them into into the story and for me, actually, it was uh, Rilke, who I read for the first time when I was um, about about eighteen or or so in college, in Iowa. And um, I kind of was at this point where I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. I didn't. I was unsatisfied, and my my mother gave me a copy of Letters to a Young Poet, and I think that's like the perfect age to read that book because <laughs> it's. I mean, it was written by Rilke when he was not much older than that himself. Um, and so I read it and I remember turning back to the beginning and reading it right again. It's a short book, you know, and um, and it, it stayed with me. And then, you know, years later, I, I ended up becoming a, uh, an arts writer, I read, uh, you know, a journalist. I cover the art world. And so, of course, I moved into knowing more about visual art and then... It was just kind of like a piece of trivia in a way, you know, I had heard somewhere that Rilke was a secretary to Rodin or something like this. And I just, I remember being really struck by it because I thought, like, I didn't even know they lived in the same time period. <laughs> like, they just seemed so different. For some reason, I didn't associate them at all. And I just kind of looked up, I, I remember just kind of looking up what the time, the timing was, and I realized that it was when Rodin was in his 60s and he was in his 20s and right when he was writing the letters to a young poet. And I thought, how, how interesting, like, I wonder he was he was working for and living with Rodin for a lot of that period. And I wonder how much of that wisdom came from, in fact, Rodin. And it turned out that a lot of it came from Rodin and his, you know, his other mentors at the time. And I just thought that was like a such an interesting backstory to this enormously famous popular book that everybody reads now the, the letters to a young poet so that's kind of how i how it came together
1: it, it was surprising for me to discover that letters to a young poet was written by rilke when he was uh suffering through severe artistic crisis that he was not as you know he wasn't like the acknowledged poet of the time that, you know, that he could give that advice. It was more, he was giving advice as if he was giving it to himself, and I I was surprised to discover that uh, while reading your book. What was, what were your feelings when you discovered that the book that kind of help, helped you and influenced you was written by someone to himself, essentially?
0: I, yeah, I know. It's, uh, I, I think it was William Gass who said it could have been called Letters from a Young Poet <laughs> instead, yeah. but, um, it, uh, I, I mean, I was totally, I mean, it seems certainly wise beyond its years. And I think, again, because a lot of it was coming from someone who was much older, but um, also when you look back on it now, I find if I read it now, it doesn't have quite the same effect. You know, it has, It it's made, I think, best as a book for a young person because it's a bit dramatic. It's, you know, the advice isn't always, the best advice, I don't think, in some ways, but um, it's really inspiring at a certain age, and it's kind of like how to. It's a book about how to become a creative person, and you know, if you're just starting out, and now it's, um, it's, it, it. I, I read it. It feels like it is from a younger person to me now, a little bit, because it's so full of hopeful yearnings and strivings and confusion and questioning. Um, and I, kinda, I love that about that book. I, I think I read it at exactly the time. And I don't think I knew how old he was when I first read it. What is the
1: your What is your favorite advice from that book? It, it's some, does anything come to your mind instantly?
0: A few things, you know. Uh, there's, of course, the famous one that everyone remembers is, you know, in the stillest hour of the night, ask yourself, must I write? And it, he goes on and on about how if you do not feel like you have to, don't do it, become a lawyer or something because you... Mm-hmm you will have a miserable life most likely and you won't make any money. And so, um, that I think is one that stays with people. You know, it's, if you, if, if you don't have to do it, you know, you'll, you'll kind of know at one point whether you have to do it or not. And then I, I liked the, I liked a lot of the writings about loneliness. Um, you know, he talks about he kind of turns sad thoughts into positive ones in this really clever way. You know, I remember him saying something about, you know, he always says embrace your solitude. You know, that's your, you're at home in yourself and something about like how loneliness is actually the the space around you expanding and, you know, he kind of makes everything seem positive. And, you know, if you, like if you have no money, well then you have no, no expectations, of you no, no requirements, you know, you could just be free in a way. You don't have any burdens of debt or responsibilities to pay for. So I remember, you know, of course in a point in my life when I was poor and lonely and trying to figure out what to do with myself mm-hmm. and how to get out of Iowa. So I think those all those messages really resonated with me.
1: Yeah, I guess that's uh, that's the thing that resonates in many people. You know, when you're in loneliness, when you lose direction and discovering this short book with a very concise, poetically written sentences, it's um, it has a really strong impact. And I like that your advice, th- the advice that you mentioned that you like is that if you don't feel like writing, if you don't feel like that something is in you that has to come out, you know, that this urge for writing... Um, don't do it, and it seems that you had that urge to write a book about those two artists. you it's like if you if you follow um, real kiss advice, you know you you had you had I assume you had the feeling that you had to write this book am i am I interpreting it correctly
0: Yeah, I, I think that's that's right. Um, I do have that feeling in general that i I don't know what else I would do if I wasn't a writer so um and this book was I I really enjoyed writing this book. I don't enjoy writing a lot of things because it's hard. But this book I really enjoyed because you could immerse yourself very much in this and the the work, the poetry and the sculpture and also just the atmosphere of Paris at the turn of the century and it was like a beautiful place to be for a couple of years. It was um so I didn't I, I remember when the idea—I I was just talking to my agent about it one day—and like how this, this, you know, this little tidbit about how Rilke was as secretary—we, we both kind of lit up. Like, I, like I, I just, I loved it from the first. You know, I, I, I was—I really loved writing this book. <laughs> what can I say?
1: What was your process of writing? How do you write? Do you collect? Are you? Um, an organizer that plans everything through what point one point two point three like the beginning the middle and the end or you're just discovering it as you research it
0: um yeah i I don't really plan i should probably plan more when i write I, i kind of you know i think about the whole story and then i but i often find that i don't really know what i want to say until i start writing it so um like that's how i think sort of as i through writing. So, um, you know, I just started, I think I tried to start in a way from the beginning. I tried to tell, I thought, okay, I'll go into Rilke's history and try to find out what his little mini biography is. And I'll do the same with Rodin, you know, before they met. And then I kind of knew that their their meeting and their period together would be the central story, of course, the middle, and then it would the end would be kind of when they split off again and both become who they would become and kind of separate in a way um so I knew that much <laughs> that's about it um but I like to just i like to just sort of write down things that are interesting to me and then I slowly start to piece them together as I go
1: what I found really inspiring when I read your book is the fact that um Rodin uh, himself his life especially at the beginning of his career was full of failure let's say you know like he had uh, a lot of misfortunes when he was starting um it, i don't know for why i find it inspiring but i assume when someone great failed so many times um before he became acknowledged it kind of gives you hope that you know <laughs> uh, maybe we're in a similar situation in some cases what what was it like for you to discover that you know broden who we acknowledge to be great today was actually how to say he was struggling himself.
0: Yeah, I, I feel the same way. I always love to hear that, <laughs> that famous people have been had been rejected before, and he wasn't really famous until he was in his forties. Rodin, I mean, he was rejected from art school three times, um, but it really informed his whole method of working. I think because he became really a laborer or like a toiler, like he he his philosophy on, on art making was just that it was work like anything else. And you just went in every day and you put one brick on top of the other or you know, chiseled one piece of marble and then the next. And then, so I think it's because he had this discipline and this kind of sensibility of, of, that he was able to keep working throughout his life even before he was getting an acknowledgement. You, you know, he was somehow able to just go in and do the job and then leave. And he, he was so singularly focused that I think it didn't somehow, it didn't get to him. I mean, I, that the others were rejecting, him. I, I'm sure he cared, but it didn't stop him. It didn't crush him. He didn't, he didn't put that much weight into the, the values of other people. He was really knew what he wanted to do.
1: I, I guess that's, that's really like inspiring, especially when you see that um, when I was reading your book, I discovered that he wasn't accepted to, if I'm not mistaken, Grand École, where he wanted to go, and he had to go, I think it was called Petite uh yeah? Uh, and I'm like, okay, the artist is not accepted, but it was a lucky thing for him not to be accepted to this institution, um, and I really found inspiring that uh, his teacher used to take them to Louvre and ask them not to draw and just... Pay attention to everything and then draw from memory. I really found that piece so inspiring. I
0: love that. I love that he because because Rodin wanted to be a teacher and he was for a little bit. He wrote a lot about his methods and how he was trained. So it's a great. It's, I, I love that we're able to have access to some of that because it's it's really fascinating and that he and also because he didn't get into the Grande Cole, he took classes at the zoo as well. And at first he hated it because it's like, you know, the bot the the figure was the highest form of achievement in art at the time. And he here he was like, you know, drawing animal skulls and bones and you know, and that didn't seem but that's actually how he he really found the sort of driving force in his work. like through animals, he found uh, movement and that that sort of shaped. You know, he always has since then or you know, throughout the rest of his life strove to create a sense of inner movement. And he says that comes from that teacher at the at the zoo who sculpted, you know, animals himself. So, I mean, it's it's incredible. And then and then, you know, he would draw that way. Like you mentioned the louvre, like he would then he would learn to draw without. Looking at his drawing, so he would have a model in front of him, and he would never take the eyes off the model, and he would just, you know, draw with one hand and never look at it. And then you get these those beautiful dancer drawings from that. Uh, and it has, I think, it's supposed to have more of like a, a feeling or a set, allows you to pay attention to the subject and and really immerse yourself in it and not just focus on your drawing at the time. You know, I I think it's I it's not I I think it could be an interesting lesson even now as well.
1: Yeah, no, uh, that's, I think like um, I was talking to to a friend and I was telling about this is just the fact that it teaches us a lot to pay attention, to rely on memory. You know, like right now we have all those devices in, in our fingertips and we can, we don't have to remember anything. And this lesson from Rodin teaches us like the art of memory and how important it is. One of the artists that I discovered through your book that I didn't know about but um, I found her work very inspiring is Camille Claudel uh, who was his assistant and became a lover as well. I found her sculptures personally also really wonderful, always all inspiring you know. Um, What was it like for you to discover like this side of Rodin, the Rodin, the I don't know should I call him womanizer?
0: Uh, Yeah in fact that was a bit the case for both of them both Rilke and Rodin were a little bit like that. But, um, yeah, I mean, Camille Claudel is really one of the tragic stories in art history, I think, because she was so talented and was really, she wasn't just Rodin's assistant, she was also his student. So, you know, there's a clear power imbalance there. And I think, you know, massive, many, several decades age gap between them, and he, he, Rodin recognized her talent. He was the he hired her to sculpt the hands and feet. He felt she was the only other sculptor than himself who had the ability to sculpt hands. And um, you know, she she had a career for a, a while, and then she started finding out that Rodin was kind of helping her on in the in the background get get shows and this kind of thing. And It absolutely humiliated her and enraged her. And when they split up, he kind of continued to do it, and then she started making work about their their relationship about him, and it wasn't wasn't positive um, because, of course, he was married and he refused to leave his wife. So she drew, made sculptures of you know, a hag, you know, winged hag, beast woman dragging like an old man. It was kind of meant to be Rodin and his wife, um, and then you know she, we. She stopped working fairly young because she was committed to an asylum, so you know we don't even know what uh, what else she could have done. But of course, she has a lot of uh, respect, and and um, she's very known now. There's a museum for her, and she has her work all over. But yeah, it's kind of a, and then you know and then um, for, I think I guess I wasn't totally surprised to to see this part of Rodin's life because the time period and you know how, how it was but um the best thing i could do was just try to give these female characters like a bit of the story themselves and kind of make them as whole and human it, as characters as I, as I could um because they sure. are often just side shows in the lives of their more famous <laughs> partners sure. I was
1: really like grateful for you too of mentioning that story because I went and followed up and looked at what uh, at her works and I found them really beautiful and skillful and I really wanted to mention it in, in this podcast. So if our listeners will be interested, you know, because very often geniuses like her as well, I believe, are like just hidden under the shadow of uh, someone like Rodin, which is. Uh, much bigger in, uh, in in historical circumstance. And I found it uh, a very shocking story that the wife of Rodin pointed gun at her uh, at some point. I was like, you know, sometimes we imagine those artists as um, some kind of saints, you know, in terms of like, I, I, maybe I'm a naive person, you know, like since it's a grand person, you cannot expect that he, he will have a, Lover, and then like the wife will point the gun at the lover and say, get off my husband and stuff like that. So
0: it's like a reality TV show we could have today. Rilke was no better either. He of course kind of abandoned his wife and daughter too, to go pursue his work. So it's always a bit disappointing to read that, but times were different then. And I guess that's how they got all the time to make their great work or something. (laughs)
1: Hello friends, I hope you enjoyed listening to my conversation with Rachel, and before we'll continue with the rest of this episode, I wanted to let you know that I collected of her favorite poems by Rilke and all of her favorite sculptures by Rodin on my website which you can find in the description of this episode. I also included all of her articles that she has written for The New Yorker, some of her favorite books and future projects and the way you can follow her on social media. As I said, you can find all of this on my website which will be linked in the description of this episode. If you would like to receive updates about the future episodes of these podcasts, some of my curated lists of books and summaries, you can subscribe to my monthly newsletter, which also will be linked in the description of this episode. Thank you very much for listening, and let's continue with the rest of this episode. I did my bachelor's degree in Prague and back then I was uh, not familiar with Rilke and since I discovered him I had so many regrets of not paying attention where he could have possibly lived in Prague, you know, the places he could have walked. It is a different attachment when you know that someone's poetry that you love lived just here could have walked here, uh, but then reading your book, I realized that he didn't particularly like living in Prague.
0: I know that was sad because I my my family is my you know background is Czech, so um, the Czechs always claim him as a Czech poet, kind of you know, and then the Germans claim him as a German poet because he writes in German, and the Austrians claim him, so it's everyone. But he, um, but he, uh, yeah, he, I think. You know, in Prague might have been different then, but he saw it as very provincial. It, it just wasn't a place you could flourish as an artist. It was, um, at least in his view, it was you had to get to Munich. That was the that was the hot spot in the day. Um, so, yeah, he felt he he also did. You know, it was very divided then between the the German minority and the Czech speaking majority, and it was very you know class divided and. I, he he recognizes and although he was in the more you know upper class, he really rejected this division and didn't identify with the the ger- German ruling class. Then he also you know didn't totally identify with the Czech because he didn't speak Czech. He lived there and never learned it, mm-hmm. even though he spoke many languages throughout the course of his life. For some reason, he never learned Czech, and so he I think he, he it, yeah it, it really it really bothered him and also he he just didn't have a good early life his childhood was also pretty hard he was sent to military school and all of this, and his parents you know were not not great so he um i think he associated as well his early life with Prague and so he kind of just rejected all of it
1: how did he know that uh he wants to become a poet because his father was insistent to different careers that I really believed that would will- would kill his soul, but uh, how how did he discover that? I want to become a poet, and that's it.
0: Well, he was he was writing poetry from an early age. Like in, in in high school, he was sending little poems he wrote to the newspapers, and they were actually publishing them. But I think it was, I think it was more after he went to. Um, I'm trying to remember. He was, he was really always writing poetry. I don't know what the, if there was a definitive moment that he identifies as like his aha realization, but I think it was after he left Prague and went to college and was in a community of other artists and writers uh, that he started to take it very seriously. And he was writing, you know, very kind of romantic poetry at this time, um, wasn't, Particularly good, although he was young, so it's to be expected. But there was a lot of like dragons and fair maidens in the poems, and um, so uh, he I think he just was good at it and he was getting a lot of feedback, he was getting it published, and so he just continued. There were, though, there were, he but he had a con- conflicted relationship because he wanted actually to be an artist in some ways like he felt that poetry always lacked something that that sculpture or something that physically lives in the world has and he he always said he felt unreal that his how could he make his poems more like a sculpture and make them real in the world he would say real and um he, he kind of never could reconcile this conflict in some ways no just that yeah i just think that that conflict is what he kind of went to rodin to seek out as well some kind of reconciliation between how to make poetry more like sculpture
1: (laughs) and it was in munich where he discovered the ideas of Theodor lips and uh, uh, forgot the name of the other scientist who i think uh, accidentally coined the empathy idea of how to relate to art um i thought like that this idea that you mentioned in your book is really kind of relevant to our day of how to look at art and how to cultivate in ourselves uh, the way we can appreciate art if it is if you could give to our listeners what was the idea that was being born at that time
0: oh you mean empathy
1: yeah yes yeah
0: yeah, yeah. so um yeah i'd say it's It's a really interesting story. I think the, basically empathy before it became um, a a term to describe how people feel the feelings of other people, it was actually a term to describe why works of art stir emotions within us. That comes from aesthetic philosophy. And uh, in German, they would say, and it was in seeing. So it was about how you can see into an object, no, I'm sorry. In seeing is is Rilke's word, but there was a einfühlung. Sorry, einfühlung in feeling was the word that was the how they said empathy in the early days. And um, uh, so it was like it was why do we feel emotions? Why when a dancer dances on stage do we feel a little bit of a leap in our own heart? You know, kind of uh, something stirs physically within us. And so that's that's what was this became a kind of almost popular. Idea, you know, it came out of you know philosophy, but it became something that a lot of artists took and then and, and ran with. And I think it really informed Rilke's work because he he started, you know, when 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 Rodin told him to go look at at the zoo at animals or at phys- at objects, um, Rilke would try to do this. He would stare at the thing for a long time and try to until he could feel what you know, the essence of the thing. And that, that, that connection between, you know, the viewer and the object was, was what would create a great work of art, is kind of what he believed and what was kind of the, the dominant trend among certain artists at that time in that period
1: the the idea was that only it is through the interaction between the viewer and the artwork itself where kind of the truth is being born and i found it like incredible because when i go to the national gallery of london and i look at the picture you know it i can feel that you know this painting might uh, stir different emotions in another person, but it is in that middle ground where that happens. And I thought that this idea that influenced Rilke and his poetry was very interesting. Gave an interesting insight into. It.
0: Yeah, it's the interaction like that creates like like it's almost like a work of art isn't a work of art until there's someone looking at it. It needs that that back and forth interaction in order to animate. And, and Rilke, of course, takes this one step further. He tries to, in the, um, like in the Archaic Tours of Apollo, when he is at the museum and then the sculpture looks back at him, it's kind of like he plays with this idea of a work of art can change us as well. Like we, we, we don't, we're not really the ones in control. We don't just go and look at a passive object, that, that object interacts with us as well.
1: I wanted to show you, like here, I have, a, um, I found it in the secondhand bookshop here. For our listeners, um, I'll include some screenshots. This is the manuscript that uh, your work is focusing in uh, on. Um, I think it is, it was in 1950s, uh, published uh, here in the UK with a wonderful kind of pictures and I was. Kind of oh that's so
0: load. cool i wish i could find an old copy like I,
1: that that's beautiful if you would like i can try to look up uh, somewhere here i had uh, to find the copy for you and i'll send you a, a link i was also fascinated by Rulke's persistence in becoming the artist you know like being rejected once again and still continuing and persisting to become an artist um I found it interesting that he met um a very interesting thinker, Lou, Lou Salome, um, who constantly appears when I read about Nietzsche. Uh she's like a dominant figure there. Um, could you please tell a little about their relationship, about about her, because she's such a fascinating character. She influenced Nietzsche, some other thinkers, Rilke. They went and saw Tolstoy together. It's such an incredible story.
0: I know you could write a whole book about her easily. I'm sure someone has, but um, she was, she was older than Rilke and she was Russian. Um, and that's funny because he met her when he was quite young, like in his I think in his early twenties. And she was um he just totally idolized her she was a writer and he thought she was brilliant and she also was i think she was more of a mentor to him but he, you know at that age he decided he was in love with her and they they were together for a while but she was also with many other people <laughs> she was she was you know, like you know she was with nietzsche for a very long time and um although she didn't have sex with that it was a whole interesting complicated story there but um so she she kind of took Rilke under her wing and tried to advise him a bit on his poetry tried to help him grow in a more mature style uh she also helped him with his sort of identity as an artist like she was almost like a a early PR person or something she she said you know you can't you can't be, you know, Rainer Rilke was of course born Renee Rilke. And so she said, Renee Maria Rilke. So she said, you know, you can't have this girl's name anymore if you wanna be taken seriously. She goes, you need a good German strong name. So she changed it to Rainer and she told him how to change his handwriting because it was very, uh, she thought feminine and big curling letters. And she said, you know, kind of taught him how to you know, change it and make it more, more masculine as well um so she she advised him on every level and throughout their whole the rest of you know their lives they remained in touch and he would send her pieces he was working on you know writings and she would comment and send him feedback and they wrote letters you know tons of letters over the years and it's just a treasure trove to look back on but um you know i think it was perhaps the most important mentor in Rilke's life maybe he sought he he often sought the advice of older people and kind of clung to them you know for a while it was Tolstoy but Tolstoy rejected him there was Lou and then there was Rodin of course. And he he was always looking for someone to guide him.
1: There are so many fascinating characters in it, you know, like um, that to explore. So uh, that's why I'm jumping around because there is like Tolstoy included, Lou Salomé, like, and um, all all those characters they deserve a separate book on just one of them. Um, and what was it like for so Rodin is coming from a perspective and the philosophy of. Travailler, toujours travaille work always work. Rilke is coming from the perspective of yeah, you know, like this new philosophy of in seeing, as you mentioned. So um, when they met, when he when Rilke took the uh, job out of desperation to write a monograph on Rodin, um, what was their first encounter between those two artists?
0: Yeah, so so he like you said he he went to Paris to meet Rodin originally because it was a commission from a publishing house. They were doing a series of monographs on artists, and this was just one of them. Um, he did. He wasn't very familiar with Rodin's work, uh, but he spent a summer preparing for the job, and he really started to he studied the sculpture and really fell in love with it. So when he got there, he knew this was going to be you know interesting on another level for him, um, and he in fact before he even arrived, he wrote a letter to Rodin saying, you know, it is actually not just to work that I've come to see you. It's, I want to ask you, how should I, how should I live? <laughs> so he had already decided before he even met him that this was going to be a monumental you know, journey of life. And when he, the first day he saw him, he, um, he went to go to his studio in, in Paris to meet and he, you know, he records everything. He he remembers knocking on the door, and he opens the door, and Rodan is in there. He's got a model on the other side of the room. He's he's ignoring her, and he's just sort of hacking away at this, at this sculpture. And he you know, Rook observes how he's kind of almost violently hitting it, and he's aggressively like throwing aside lumps of clay and spits on the sculpture, and then <laughs> reworks it, uh, and and he and Rodan is polite and pleasant he doesn't say a whole lot uh and he invites Rilke in and he says to, you know look around and Rilke spends the whole day just sort of mesmerized by the sculptures in the studio and he just tries to you know hurriedly write everything down and he's just it, totally in ecstasy <laughs> the way he writes about it and this is the first encounter and it would it would, you know, it, they, that was the setup for their dynamic, which is very much like the fawning young pupil and the reserved kind of master who doesn't say as much, but, you know, is happy to have his fawning young people.
1: <laughs> it was so interesting to read about that dynamic, uh, about, you know, this, uh, between two of them, two separate art forms and kind of influencing um, each other. Um, what was it for you to write this part of biography, of this part of the story? What what was, like, what surprised you perhaps in their relationship, in your opinion? Like, uh, uh, were there any, some accidental discoveries that you were like, I didn't expect that?
0: That's a good question. I think, um, I don't know what I expected because... I you know I kind of I learned about this whole relationship as I went in a way, but um, I mean one thing I remember that stood out to me is you know we I was always longing to find how what Rodin thought of Rilke in turn because we know we know about Rilke's feelings he writes them all down but we really don't know much about Rodin's thoughts because he wasn't a writer and he wasn't writing letters and journals every day about about his feelings. Um, so that he was this sort of enigma to me that I wanted to crack, and I guess it was surprising to find he, as sort of stoic and you know serious as he was, it was surprising to find that later in life he actually um, was was really hurt by Rilke sometimes and really cared cared about him, and was actually much sort of. Softer and 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 more um more humble than than I would have thought. His 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 character kind of comes out to me after Rilke sort of moves on in life and leaves him, and then Rodin is the one who starts calling Rilke and sending him fruit baskets and trying to get him to come visit, and Rilke doesn't really respond. So you learn the depth of that through that. You learn that the depth of their bond was was mutual and. Um, was very meaningful for Rodin too. And I, I I was kind of happy to see that in a way.
1: <laughs> what was the hardest part of writing this book? Uh, were there any challenges that um, really kind of put obstacle on your way?
0: Well, he, this was one, not having his side of, Rodan's side of the relationship. It was really hard. It was hard to keep it balanced and you had so much material on on the poet, and then it was hard to. I had to really dig to find little crumbs of insight and details on you know on on the relationship from his perspective. So that was difficult. Um, what else? I think um, you know it was. It's it's hard to try to recreate a period you don't live in <laughs> you know this is my first time trying to do that and so i remember like checking out books from the library about this period and like you know i'd find like that as they were building all these hospitals there was a smell of iodine in the air and everyone was complaining about iodine in the air and it was like okay so then i like so that's like then like one line i can put into my book like things smelled like that. Or, you know, they go to the zoo and here's what zoos meant at the time. Zoos were kind of, you know, also houses for exotic colonial objects that the colonizers brought back from their various islands and that they were really a spectacle, a kind of, you know, zoos were a different thing then, you know, and so I remember having to do all this extra sort of side research about every little detail. You couldn't describe anything in the way you might think it would be today. and to try and create it and make it a very very narrative and try to really make a scene um, it takes it takes a lot of work it turns out
1: I just I'm trying to imagine your state of mind writing this book about this age um, I, I wanted to ask you if uh, there are so many questions but I'm curious if there are if there were like lessons that stayed with you after finishing this book something that you've learned about artistic journey from the perspective of Rilke and his life, you know, of beginning and not knowing what direction to go, encountering this mentor. And while like Rodin had a, a bit of different thing, he became irrelevant towards the end of his life with the birth of new art forms. Were there any lessons that stayed with you after finishing this book?
0: I think that I think that a lot of people think about these figures or artists great artists as somehow kind of almost non-human sort of, you know, like they're they're touched with some sort of divine gift. And that's, I think what Rilke thought early in his life when he was writing letters to a young poet, he was like, how do I get that thing that, you know, that magic touch, whatever it is. Um, and I think that he learned, and I think what you kind of take away from the book is that, um, really all it is is a lot, a lot of dedication and work uh, they were both really relentless artists and they it drove them entirely their whole lives were devoted to this and I think that you know it isn't you don't need to find out how how to live as Rilke started out asking like there is no certain food to eat or place to live or that's going to give you what it takes and I think people sort of look for that when they, when they want to become creative, they want to read about what, what, what how did this person do it exactly? Where exactly did they go to school? And I'll just follow that roadmap. Road but I think um, Rodan wrote good, good examples of how truly human they were and how they were so successful because of their talent, of course, but also because they, they just never stopped working. And, it's not you know it's not romantic but that's I think how it goes.
1: <laughs> do you have uh obviously you have but like the uh, what what is your favorite work by both of the artists? Any, if you don't mind me asking, I'm really curious because you've dedicated so much time observing them, reading about them, writing about them. Is there a fa- are there favorites?
0: Oh, that's an impossible. I'm fa- I mean. Definitely, I love I love the Panther, of course, with Rilke, and I love I love the archaic torso of Apollo. I mean, I'm biased because that's where my title comes from of the book. Um, and I spent a lot of time with that poem when I was writing it because I I felt it was really kind of encapsulating his transition in life at that time. Um, I love some of his uh, unpublished work. He has a collection of. Um, I mean, it's been published now as, you know, an uncollected work, but he, he has some beautiful writings, some sort of his, before his later years when he was writing in French, but sort of mid, mid career, um, works. Um, Rodin, I love a lot of it. Um, you know, I love that he, I really love the, the hands that he, he would sculpt and then break off and he would. You know, just put the hands everywhere, and they kind of became lives of their own. You know, he he felt that you could show the entire an entire narrative or or feeling through a single body part. You didn't need a face to convey the emotion for you, or the expression for you. You could have it in an inanimate thing, you know, or a a, a piece. You could have it in a torso. Or you could have it in a knee. I don't don't think he sculpted knees, but he could have. Um, So I love the hands. I think actually there's a show that just opened up of of Rodin's hands that I I need to see. But um, and then, oh God, I mean, I love there's so many. I don't, I can't pick one. Um, you, You know, I'm just, I'm tied to like the evolution of it. So like Man with a Broken Nose is such a big turning point in his, how he started thinking about art. So I love that one in a way because it's, it's, I see, it captures a moment of, of his artistic journey. And it really changed history in a way, that sculpture. And so I love that one. Um, I don't know, I could go on and on. But
1: <laughs> Is there a question you would ask them if I suddenly could transform and like Rilke became alive, let's say, and you could ask one question to Rilke and in a similar manner to Rodin, what would uh, those, maybe two questions, you know, two separate questions to those artists be? What would you ask Rilke and Rodin?
0: I don't know. I have to think about that. That's a
1: very hard question.
0: There's so much.
1: Was there a thing that when you were writing, you were like, you had on the back of your mind, you were like saying, what do you think here at this stage of your life rilke what uh, what's your philosophy here or then? you know i don't know anything that like was hovering around uh, above you while writing this book
0: well i mean of course i would love to ask rilke about the poems you know uh, some some of them are so mysterious and strange you know i would love like i would love to know what he was thinking with that last line, you must change your life, for example. It comes out of nowhere in that poem and startling almost when you read it. And, you know, part of the greatness of that poem is you don't know exactly what he was thinking. But of course, I kind of want to know <laughs> what, what, you know, I would love to ask him about that. Um, I'm sort of interested in what his 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 personal life, he took a turn, you know, when he started, when he moved to the to Switzerland and he started, he met the mother of the artist Balthus who was then a child uh, and he really mentored him and and kind of finally in life became the mentor instead of the constant student and I, I felt like it was kind of, it was a beautiful relationship but it also was kind of sad because he didn't give it to his own daughter and I'm kind of curious about whether he was sort of what baltus meant to him was it was he like did he feel like it was a father relationship was it trying to make amends for, for his sort of abandoning his daughter was it you know what did he see in that and what did he what was he was he trying to give back or rectify something in his own life it was kind of it was very interesting their, their relationship I thought um Rodan. I mean, I would just like him to say anything because he didn't speak very much. <laughs> I would love to know what he really thought about Roca. I would love to know um, what he. I mean, his. He said the same things a lot of times. You know, he he was hard in interviews. He would just say, "I work. I do." You know, he, he gave a lot of two word answers. Um, so I think getting to open up, up about anything that was important to him would be. Illuminating, but I don't know that it would work. He's a very, very close off guy. I don't know. I'm not giving you a good answer, but I have to. That's a hard one.
1: Sorry for uh, for such a question because it, it is, there are so many questions to ask artists like that. And my last quest, question to you is um, Are there any recent books that you really enjoyed that you would like our readers to know about? Anything that you've enjoyed recently? I always give this follow up thing because it reveals so much about you, you know, about what kind of things you're reading.
0: Well, it's a bit odd because the, I'm writing my next book is actually about crime, so it's totally, totally different. So I'm reading a lot of, um, uh, you know, I read, I just read, a, like, a crime thriller, actually, by Tana French, <laughs> and I'm reading, you know, looking back here, like, these things, like The Nature of Evil and books about... It. <laughs> totally, so, maybe not your yeah. audience's... Um, but also, you know, I think for in terms of this topic, like I, I, always go back to William Gass. He's he's maybe you know he wrote about Rilke, but of course his essays on, on, on everything are, are brilliant and beautiful. The Temple of Texts. That's the one I, that comes to my mind that I that I loved in particular.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. I, would, I, I had so many questions for you, but we are running out of time. And I'm so grateful. It's such, uh, it, it is an amazing book. And I said, like, I sound like a fanboy, but I really recommend everyone to read it. Uh, is there any date for your future book uh, on crime, which, um, yes, it is on a different subject, but, you know, it might, uh, I'm quite sure many people would be interested to... Find out about it as well.
0: Yeah, it's. I don't have a publication date yet, but I'm. I'm trying to finish it by this spring, and then um, you know, go through the editing process. So probably at least, you know, a year, two years, something. But I'll let you know, of course. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me too. It's really (laughs) nice to talk to you. And thank, thank you,
1: thanks so much, thank you. I would like to thank all of you who support this podcast by listening, by sending donations, by sending emails and messages telling me about your thoughts, about your book recommendations and potential future guests. It warms my heart so much because a year and a half ago, before I launched this podcast, before this podcast even existed, I couldn't have imagined uh, feedback that I was getting uh, that i 'm getting right now, so thank you all for your support and I hope you enjoyed this episode with Rachel Corbett, as I said, all of her favorite poems, all of her articles, favorite sculptures by Rodin, you can find it linked in the description of this episode. You can follow and get updates about the future episodes by subscribing to my newsletter and you can join my community there because I send emails only from my personal email address, which means you can just click reply button and send me your thoughts and your opinion about what you think about um, about the book or a podcast episode. So I hope to meet you there. Once again, thank you so much for listening and I'll see you in the next one.